Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 6, 1 through 8, and 16 through 21. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Before we dive into this text, will you join me in prayer? Jesus, we come to you this morning. Uh, we just sang that the day is coming. We know the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess your great name, that you are Lord over all, that you are ruling and reigning, that everything that exists exists because of you and ultimately exists for you. And yet, Lord, we also know that in our day-to-day -day lives, in the midst of all of the burdens we carry, the issues we're facing, both the joys and the sorrows and the hardships, it's easy to lose sight of how great you are and that you are ruling and reigning. It's easy to be overwhelmed by the problems before us. It's easy to become obsessed with the minutia of our day-to-day -day lives and to lose sight of the bigger plan you have and the, the purposes you are accomplishing both in our world and in your people. And so we pray as we come to your word this morning that your spirit, he might awaken something in us. He might stir in us an attentiveness to your word that we might see and learn and discover anew some transcendent truths that you have for us, that the life you have for us, what, what that life of flourishing and goodness looks like. We pray that we would receive these words with humility, but also with joy, knowing that you are you are good, that you delight in your children, and you want the absolute best for us. And so, Lord, we lay everything down, and we come with open hands, open hearts, open minds to hear what your word has for us. It's 
in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I think for, I know for a lot of people here, today is the last day of spring break. Isn't that right? Anyone want to boo that because it's over? Uh, I got to spend some extra time with my kids this week, uh, and I always cherish it because I feel like what everyone says is true. I'm just watching my kids grow up so rapidly, and so I, I always feel this need to make the best use of my time when I'm with them, knowing that it's limited. And so when we're out running errands, I always feel like it's my duty to take advantage of that little bit of time we have together in my truck. And so I use that time in particular to educate them about music and to help them discern good music from bad music. Because I grew up in a musical family. Music's something I'm very passionate about. And so... <clears throat> I grew up listening to all kinds of music, and so I'm always trying to introduce them to all kinds of music. So we'll listen to, you know, Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings, and then we'll listen to Marvin Gaye and Ray Charles, The Beatles, Elvis Presley, and we just kind of run the gamut. And I know I've succeeded when my kids get in my truck and ask if we can listen to Stevie Wonder instead of Baby Shark. Like that, <laughs> that makes me feel kind of like, hey, I haven't totally screwed up as a dad. Uh, but I was out with my boys this week, and we were talking, and I was like, this is a great song. This is great music. And so we, we got into this conversation, and one of them asked, well, what makes a song great? What makes certain music great? Which is actually a pretty profound and deep question, right? Like, how do you, how do you answer that? And <clears throat> the best answer I could come up with is, you know, one of the signs of great music is that it transcends time that it transcends time and people groups, that generations, that it, you listen to it today and it sounds as fresh and as powerful as it did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago when it was recorded, that there's some music that's really popular for a while and then it kind of fades to the background and no one ever listens to it again. Anyone remember Ace of Bass, right? Like really into Ace of Bass and then you kind of never listened to, if you didn't listen to them, you probably grew up either a lot you're a lot older or a lot younger than me, but they were huge, but they, they were just okay, if that. But they were their place and their time at that point in history, but they didn't transcend time. Like, great music transcends time. That's one of the marks of greatness. Well, we're in this series looking at Jesus' Sermon, of the, Sermon on the Mount, and people for the last 2,000 years, both Christians and non-Christians, have agreed that this is one of, if not the highest, teachings that we have. And what people have found is that through each generation, when they actually come and they put themselves under Jesus' teaching, they find and discover anew how profound and rich and powerful his teachings here really are. And I think one of our jobs as a people, especially for us as a church, as we're going through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it's discover anew what he's saying here. And what people have found and what we will find is that as we press in to the sermon, the things Jesus is talking about, when you think about 2,000 years ago, he, he lived on the other side of the globe. And yet everything he's talking about here speaks directly to our lives and our hearts. It's eternally relevant. In the sermon, Jesus speaks to some of the deepest longings and questions of the human heart, questions about meaning. Why are we here? What's our purpose? It speaks to our longings. Like, what does it mean to really flourish in life, to be happy, 
questions about goodness, what he refers to as righteousness. What does it really mean to be good? Everyone knows we should be good, but what does real goodness look like? Jesus answers all of those questions and more in this sermon. It's a well you can go back to again and again, and you will never reach the bottom of. Now, last week, Jonathan, he taught on a huge section out of chapter 5, and the big theme of that section, Jesus is talking about goodness, about righteousness. And he, in particular, he's talking about there's a surface level righteousness, you know, or a You're following the letter of the law, but there's a deeper righteousness, a greater righteousness that flows from our hearts. And in chapter 5, the big thing Jesus is addressing is this greater righteousness in our relationships with one another. And so Jesus talks about anger and murder and lust and adultery and divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving our enemies. It's all interpersonal. Here in chapter 6, he keeps this theme of greater righteousness, but then he applies it here to our relationship with God and how we relate to God, and what it looks like to not just go through the motions in a relationship with God, not just to obey the letter of the law, but to actually embody the spirit that God would have for us. And Jesus, he focuses on three specific acts of spiritual devotion, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. And in Jesus' day, those were kind of the three major marks of piety, of spiritual devotion. And so in our day, we probably have some similar marks. Ours would be prayer, that would overlap. But we would say reading the Bible probably is one and going to church is one. And now what's interesting is Jesus, he addresses these three big issues, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. But he kind of goes into detail when it comes to prayer. But the other two, he doesn't really teach much about how you actually fast. He doesn't really say a whole lot about how you give to the needy. He does say a little bit more about prayer, and so we're going to spend an entire week on the Lord's Prayer next week. But Jesus' goal in these verses, it's not to give a crash course in these acts of spiritual devotion. Rather, Jesus' goal here is he's trying to warn us about what is probably the single greatest threat to a life of spiritual devotion. And he's using these things as an example. And so this teaching here, it's not really so much about fasting and giving to the needy and praying as it is Jesus telling his disciples, if you're going to follow me and pursue this greater righteousness, there's one big warning that you need to be abundantly aware of that's going to threaten the life of discipleship. And so with the rest of our time this morning, I want to talk about what that warning is. And then I want to show you that embedded in that warning is an invitation that he warns us against something, but he invites us to something else. And then I want to finish things up by talking and holding before you a practice to help us grow into that invitation. So starting with the warning, it's in verse 1. It's a summary verse of the whole section. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now it's... It's really important to be clear about what Jesus is saying here and what he's not saying here. And so I want to highlight two things Jesus is not saying here. The first thing Jesus is not saying in this verse is he is not telling his disciples, hey, don't go and do good works. That's not what he's saying. And I I know that might seem obvious and it might seem clear, but I've noticed this trend, particularly in theologically conservative gospel-centered churches, I've seen this trend kind of expand where 
good works tend to get a bad rap. And the only time good works are talked about, they're talked about in a negative way. And a lot of this is because we want to preserve the truth of the gospel and we want to preserve what was recovered at the Reformation, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that our good works do not save us, that we are pardoned by sheer grace, which is absolutely true, but it's not the whole truth. We're pardoned by grace, and then by grace, God gives us a new power. He gives us his spirit, and his spirit empowers us to go forth into the world and to do good works works that will benefit our neighbor, and works that will glorify God. God's desire for his church is that they would do good, that they would practice righteousness. And if you don't understand that, there's a whole bunch of the Sermon on the Mount and a whole bunch of Jesus' teachings that will never make sense to you. You know, I've heard people say, or they'll put it on Twitter, that the gospel is not about behavior modification. And I always want to respond, like, what Bible are you reading? What translation do you have? Because when I read the teachings of Jesus, or Paul, or Peter, or John, it's like half of what they're saying is, change your behavior. I want to see your life shaped and molded in a different way. Change how you're thinking. So we could certainly say the gospel is not first about behavior modification. It's first about fleeing to God in faith. It's absolutely about behavior modification. Jesus wants you, he wants me, he wants us, church, to do good works. And when we do those good works, those good works are not, as many of you have probably heard, they're not filthy rags. Anyone heard that verse quoted? Anyone ever heard someone say, all of our good works are nothing but filthy rags? Well, there is a verse in the Old Testament in Isaiah, Isaiah 64, where Isaiah says, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And so people will take that and say, all of our good works are like filthy rags before God. And that's just not true. Paul, again and again, talks about God delighting in our good works. Isaiah, in that text, he's speaking to a particular people in a particular place at a particular time. He's actually not indicting people who, from their heart, want to honor God with their lives. He's really, he's indicting religious hypocrisy. People whose hearts are far from God, but they're still kind of going through the motions. Which, interestingly enough, is the same thing Jesus is indicting in this text. So one, Jesus is not saying don't do good works or good works don't matter. Jesus actually assumes that we as his disciples are going to do good works. He doesn't say in verse 2, if you give to the needy, if by chance you give to... He says when. When you give. And give to the needy, that's a hard word to translate. Older translations would say almsgiving, but it's kind of this big word. So it can mean charity or giving to one person in need, or it can mean bigger things. It can actually, it speaks to what today we would call social justice, which quite literally means working for justice in society. And so Jesus, he assumes that we as his disciples are going to be involved in doing good in the church and in the greater world. So that's number one thing. The first thing he's not saying. The second thing he's not saying is that we need to hide all of our good works. That's not the teaching of this text. He's not saying you have to hide every good work that you do. In chapter 5, 
Earlier in the sermon, Jesus said, let your, good, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So there he's saying, hey, go live such a good life before people that they see you and they start worshiping God. So that, that means that he can't be saying here, hey, hide. Anytime you do something good, hide it from people. And the key here is one little phrase in, in verse 1. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, but we can't stop there. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. This is the warning. Jesus, he's not really addressing our actions as much as he's addressing our motivations and our heart. And what he's saying here is don't do good things for the sake of being seen. Put it another way. There's nothing wrong with being seen as you pray. There's something really wrong with praying in order to be seen. There's nothing wrong with being seen doing good. There's something really wrong with doing good in order to be seen. And it's really important that we understand this, that he's talking about heart and motivation, not action, because you could actually try to, you know, rigorously apply the letter of what Jesus is saying here, and it would go really bad for you. You know, if we applied the letter of the law here, we could never pray with anyone. We would always have to pray by ourselves. And we could never give, at least I could never give, because I still haven't figured out how to give without my left hand knowing what my right hand is doing. And you could actually take this and it could corrupt your heart even worse because you could say, man, I do all of these things and no one knows about them. I'm such a great person. So that, that's not what he's saying. What he's warning us about is this great danger that comes with pursuing a righteous life. And that's turning this righteous life, these spiritual acts of devotion into a show for others. John Stott, as he always is, is so helpful here. He says, it is our human cowardice which made Jesus say, let your light shine before men. And our human vanity, which made him tell us to beware of practicing piety before men. And so Jesus lays this warning out, and then he gives some borderline humorous, probably exaggerated examples to drive his point home. The first example is someone who, before giving to those in need, marshals together a marching band that kind of plays hail to the chief as they walk into the temple to give their offering so that everyone sees them. The second one is someone who gets out on a street corner or maybe they, they stand up, it'd be like someone standing up right now in the middle of church and then just offering a really loud prayer for everyone to hear filled with a lot of adjectives, you know, about who God is, our precious, heavenly, holy, majestic father using big flowy language. And then the third example is about people who fast and fasting is supposed to be something between you and God. And what these people are doing is I had to look this up. It's believed that they would actually put makeup on their face to make themselves look worse. You know, they, they put bags under their eyes and then they would practice distorting their facial features. And so while they were fasting, they would walk around and just look like they would grimace. And so people would say, are you okay? It's like, no, I'm fasting because I love God so much. And so Jesus, he's, he's holding all these examples out, kind of like these are ridiculous examples. But in the ridiculous examples, he's, a, he's exposing something that we all see. We all see in people this tendency to kind of put on a show. And Jesus, the one thing all three of these examples have in common, Jesus says that they're all hypocrites. In our day, hypocrisy means to say one thing and then do another. 
if you're going to understand Jesus when he used this word hypocrisy, you have to understand a hypocrite in his day had a much broader and bigger meaning. The word translated hypocrite was actually the word for actor. And so for Jesus, when he calls someone a hypocrite, he's saying that's someone who's playing a part. They're not living honestly from the heart. Instead, they're living their life as if they're on a stage performing before other people. When they give, when they pray, when they fast, they're doing it before an audience of others. Now, this is the big warning. And I think it's important to remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to his disciples. He's not talking to the Pharisees. He's actually talking to people who were pretty poor in spirit and poor in real life and they were broken and they weren't very powerful. And what he's saying is, if you're going to come after me and be my disciple, you're going to grow in righteousness. And that's a wondrous thing. But with that growth in righteousness, you've got to beware. Because one of the greatest threats to your soul is going to come as you grow in goodness and righteousness and holiness. This is one of the greatest, if not the greatest threat to authentic discipleship. And if we're honest, we all feel this temptation, don't we? To do our good before others. I mean, maybe you're different, but I know there's this powerful impulse within me that feels the need to tell people when I do something good. Or to like let them in, to show them in some way. Maybe I'm the only one, but I feel it. But I know I'm not the only one because I live around people. And I watch people do this all the time. Have you ever known someone who's been on a diet for two days and everyone in their life knows that they're on a diet? It's like, yeah, I just said, I got to get my life together. So I've been, been doing this diet. It's been challenging. It's been hard. But you know, I'm encouraged. How long have you been doing it? Two days. Oh, cool. Someone starts working out. They worked out once in the last month. It's like, yeah, I've been working out a little bit lately. No, you haven't. You went to the gym one time. But we feel the need to tell people. We see this not just in life, we see it especially in our spiritual lives. Like you haven't gotten up to read the Bible in a month, but the one day you did get up to read, you told everyone. Like, yeah, this morning I got up, I was reading the Word, love digging into the Word. <laughs> you like quote something you read, because you, yeah, you memorize verses, maybe you read a book. We see this very much around the season of Lent. And I don't have any particular person in mind, so if you feel convicted here, that's from the Spirit, not from me. <laughs> but like the irony of Lent, which is like, I'm going to give something up to focus my attention and devotion on God. The irony of people who will post things like, hey, I've just realized that people's approval means too much to me, so I'm posting on here for all of the people that I care about their approval. I want them all to know that I'm not going to be on social media because I'm trying to grow in holiness and I want you guys to approve of that. If you need to reach me, here are seven different ways between now. I mean, we do this. There's just something about us that we do something good and like we have to tell people. We got to get it out there. And Jesus is saying, you've got to be aware of that impulse and you've got to put it to death. Because that impulse it will rob you of joy. It'll rob you. It'll undermine the very righteousness you're trying to cultivate in your life. Now, that's the warning. And as I said, and I want to sear this into your mind. Every time Jesus gives a warning, he also gives an invitation. 
Jesus never just indicts people. Like, you're horrible and stop doing these things and we'll talk in a few days. He always, when he'll, he'll indict and criticize, he'll break up an old foundation so that a new foundation can be laid. And so in this text, Jesus is giving a warning, but he's also giving an invitation. And it's really important to see this because Jesus' goal here, I would argue it's much greater and it's much deeper than just keeping us from performing spiritual acts in order to be seen. I think Jesus' goal here, he's addressing something more than, hey, don't be show-offs. And you're going to have to focus with me because this is, it's going to require some brain power on your part. But I believe that what Jesus is going for here in this text, Jesus is trying to fundamentally restructure our hearts and the source of motivation in our hearts. Jesus is trying to restructure our heart and our motivations and, and how those things work. And where I get that is in this text, Jesus, it's a theme that's easily overlooked by us, but it's probably the main theme in this text, and it's one of the main themes in the Sermon on the Mount of the whole, as a whole, is the theme of reward. Did you notice when Lindsay read the text how many times Jesus talked about reward? Ten times. He mentions rewards or treasures in this text. And he says, if you do it this way, you got your reward from people. If you do it this way, your father will reward you. Now, we as Western evangelicals, we get a little uncomfortable with this talk of rewards. It's like, what are the rewards? What does that mean? Like, why should, so is he saying like, we should only do good because the father will reward us? We get really uncomfortable. And the reason why this seems foreign and strange to us and we get uncomfortable is because whether we realize it or not, we've, we've all been influenced by the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, who taught that you should do the good thing just because it's a good thing. You do the right thing because it's the right thing. You don't do it because you're going to get something out of it. And I would say with, with all due respect to Kant, Jesus knows nothing of that teaching. Jesus never says, give to the poor because it's the right thing to do. Jesus says, give to the needy, pray in secret, fast in secret. Why? Because your father is going to reward you for it. Jesus, he, <laughs> he knows that the hope and promise of reward is what motivates us in life. And so... I don't have anyone else here. Sometimes I get really tired at night. Uh, kids are in bed. I'm exhausted. I sit down in my chair, and then I get thirsty, you know, and I'm praying that my wife gets up for something because uh, I'm so tired. I, like, don't, I don't want to get up. Anyone ever been that tired? But you're thirsty, and so sometimes, though, I'll actually get up, even though I'm exhausted, and I'll go fill up the glass of water, and I'll drink it. Why? What gets me out of the chair? I mean, it's a silly, silly illustration, but what gets me out of the chair? It's the hope of a reward of my thirst being quenched. Like everything we do is motivated by the hope and the promise of reward. And that's not sinful or wrong. That's just the way God has wired us and designed us and ordered the universe. And so when we step into acts of spiritual devotion, it's not wrong to be motivated by the hope of reward. Jesus, he's promising reward over and over again in this text. It's God's design. 
The question, though, is what kind of reward are we looking for and who are we looking to get it from? That's the big question. We're all looking for rewards every day, all day. The question is who are we looking to provide the reward and what is that reward we're looking for? With a piercing simplicity, Dallas Willard writes, when we do good deeds to be seen by human beings, that is because what we are looking for is something that comes from human beings. Let me read that again. When we do good deeds to be seen by human beings, that is because what we are looking for is something that comes from human beings. What Willard's saying here is the reason we do good in order to be seen is because we want people to give us a reward. And the reward we typically want from people is their approval, their applause, their admiration, or maybe just their affirmation to say, hey, you're not doing such a bad job. So we do the good deed because we want other, and we want other people to see it because we want them to affirm and to applaud and to encourage us. And what's really interesting is Jesus doesn't say, when you do good deeds in order to be seen, you'll never get a reward. He says, you actually will get a reward. You just already got it. He says, they've received their reward. You wanted people's approval and their applause and their praise and their affirmation, and you got it. Congratulations. But Jesus knows, and man, we know, that while human applause is powerful, it's also fleeting. And it's got a ridiculously short shelf life. Right? Anyone been encouraged once and you were good? <laughs> Seven years ago, my wife said, hey, I think you're a great dad. And ever since then, I've just been kind of on cruise control because I'm great. No, that's not how life works. We actually, when, when people encourage us or when they affirm us and we're living for that and it means a lot to us, say I do something good as a dad and my wife says, hey, you're a great dad today. It's not like I'm good now. Instead, tomorrow, if she doesn't say that, I start wondering, am I a good dad still? What did I do yesterday that I didn't do today? Why did she encourage me then instead of now? See, because living for human approval and affirmation, it's like an addiction, and it's a nasty addiction. And it doesn't lead to flourishing or happiness or joy or peace or contentment. It leads to slavery. And all of a sudden, all of your motives in life get all mixed because you, you know there's the right thing God's called you to do, but you want to do it in such a way that other people are going to really like you. You're trying to maintain an image trying to live up to people's expectations. You become desperately insecure. You become self-righteous, angry, or bitter when you feel overlooked or you feel taken for granted. And you end up being miserable and a miserable person to be around. One of the worst things you can do for human relationships is live for humans' approval. And Jesus, that's his big indictment of the Pharisees. It's not that they were too religious. It's that their religious was just their religion was built around wanting to be seen by men. He says that in Matthew 23. The way they dress themselves, everything they do, they just want to be seen and they become toxic to the community. They try to build their own lives, their own name, their own glory, their own fame, their own kingdom instead of living in light of the kingdom of God. And Jesus, he's offering this warning, the invitation. He's saying, don't do that. 
I've got a better way. I've got a better way to live that will lead to real flourishing, not to slavery. And I came across this phrase from Oz Guinness. It was just so good. It, it struck me. He said, and I would, I would adapt it to say it like this, that in this text, Jesus is inviting us to live the entirety of our lives before an audience of one. In this text, Jesus is inviting us to learn to live our lives not before a bunch of people, before an audience of one. He's saying, learn what it means to live as if the only person watching you is your heavenly father. And he loves you. He delights in you. He wants the best for you. Let everyone else be small and let him be big. The problem is for us, God gets small really quickly and people get big and then we start doing weird stuff and our lives get all, our motives get mixed up and Jesus is saying, don't do that. Live before an audience of one. I don't know if your kid's ever been in a play or, or maybe it's like uh, around Christmas when we have kids choir and the kids are up here singing and you know, one of my boys, when he's up here singing, he's, he doesn't really enjoy it. Uh, I told him he has to because he's a pastor's kid. Uh, pay for his therapy later. But... He doesn't really enjoy it, but it is interesting when we make eye contact, he'll smile. It's funny because he's standing in front of like hundreds of people, but it's that audience of one thing for a moment. He sees his father and he knows that I love him and it doesn't matter if he sings on key or off key or doesn't sing, like it's not going to change anything. And man, he smiles and actually sometimes he'll start singing. Jesus is saying, learn to live like that. God, he's actually not hard to please. People are impossible to please. <laughs> you can do an act and 20 different people will respond in 20 different ways. People are fickle. They're selfish. People are impossible. God's not hard to please. He says, obey my word. And when you, you don't obey, repent. Turn from how you failed to obey and then obey. And I delight in you. Live before me. And Jesus says, when you do this, I mean, you're going to find peace. You're going to find contentment and joy. But what Jesus says is when you learn to do this, that God's going to reward you too. Isn't that crazy? He's like, he'll see you doing this. You help the needy. No one knows about it. God knows. He saw. I think it was Willard who said, like, one of the great lies of our day is the belief that good works have to be advertised in order to be known. That unless we, we, we announce it, God sees all. He knows all. We don't have to advertise. And he promises reward. And so that forces us to ask the question, well, what is the reward? Is it a new car, a bigger house? Well, probably not. Because Jesus actually, he says that those are pretty miserable treasures to have. Those would actually be miserable rewards because like moths and rust can destroy them. God loves you way too much to give you a reward that's going to be worthless in 10 or 20 years. So what's the reward? I don't know if I can fully answer that question, but I'll give you two dimensions of it. One, the reward is our inheritance. That is, we seek to live lives that are honoring the king and we're living before the audience of one, the king, 
he promises us that we will live eternally in the kingdom of God. That's a pretty great promise. I think with that, the other reward that I could highlight is he promises to honor us, to applaud us, to affirm us, to celebrate. He promises to give us what we're hoping other people will give us, but they can never really give us. He promises to give us that. And that's where this text gets tricky. We all want to be noticed and we all want affirmation, and that's not inherently bad or wrong. Any other parents of little kids hear stuff like this day in and day out? Dad, 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 dad. Look at me. Dad, dad, look. You got to check this out. Dad, here, mom, 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 come see this. Look what it... Anyone else? How many of you respond, I am not looking at you because you are vain. Go sit in a corner by yourself. (laughs) Of course not. Because it's not wrong. Like, it's not wrong. It's just part of being human. It's just a need that we want to be be noticed. We, we We want benedictions, good words spoken over us. I think the reward Jesus gives is your father will speak the good word over you. And man, when he speaks the good word over you, it changes everything when you actually hear it. So that's the invitation. Live before him and listen to him. Let him be big and everyone be small. And so I want to close by, by holding before you a practice. Because it's easy for me to get up and talk about, hey, let's live before an audience of one. And everyone's like, yeah, that sounds great. But it's actually a really hard thing to do. It's really hard to live for the approval of God and not care so much about the approval of people. And I'll tell you, to change in this area, it doesn't happen by sheer willpower alone. Human praise, approval, and applause, it's like a drug. It's like an addiction. And you can't break an addiction by willpower alone, usually. So it makes an addiction an addiction. To really break an addiction, you have to adopt new patterns and practices and routines in life. And I would say throughout the history of the church, people have talked about these patterns and routines, these practices, they've called them spiritual disciplines. And spiritual disciplines, they are activities that we can do right now, which enables us to do something we cannot do right now. You guys with me on that? Change the metaphor a little bit. If if someone said, hey, Kevin, go run a half marathon right now, I, I don't think I could do that. I'm actually pretty confident I couldn't do that. I take the bet against myself. What I can do is go run a half mile. And so I could go run a half mile today, and then I could run six-tenths of a mile tomorrow and kind of do that for three or four months. And over time, with God's grace, I could probably run a half marathon. Why? Through disciplines. That's a physical discipline. The church has held forth. There are spiritual disciplines. So many of us, we have things in our lives that we want to see changed and we pray God change it, but we're not willing to actually step into the disciplines and the practices. Well, there are a lot of disciplines. There's prayer, there's fasting, there's Bible study, Bible meditation, memorization. One of the the lesser known disciplines is what the saints of old called the discipline of secrecy. Now, the discipline of secrecy, a lot of people like, is this some kind of mystical thing? No, the, the discipline of secrecy is actually exactly what Jesus is teaching here. In the discipline of secrecy, you seek to do good things, and then you take extra care that no one sees those good works you've done or hears about it. 
mean, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. When you give, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. When you pray, lock yourself in a closet so no one can see you. When you fast, it's like wash your face and put oil on so no one would ever even suspect that you're fasting. That's the discipline of secrecy. You work to do really good things. You work to honor and obey God. And you try your best not to let anyone else know about it. And so if you get up early to pray, you don't arrange your Bible and your journal and your cup of coffee and a flower that appears out of nowhere <laughs> to take a picture and post it on Instagram so that everyone else, when they wake up and they're scrolling through Instagram, they can say, man, they got up to pray while I was still asleep. Like, you don't do that. If you go to a shelter to help people who are in need, you don't snap a quick pic and throw it up on Facebook for everyone to see. If you're talking to a friend who's down on their luck and you lend them some money or lend them a hand or you go to great lengths to help them, you don't show up at community group that week with their prayer request. Hey, my friend went through this. Don't worry, I helped them. Here's all the things I did for them. But if you could just keep them in your prayers, generally speaking, that would be great. I know some of you are thinking, if I can't do that, why would I do these things? <laughs> like, isn't that the reward? The picture? The applause? No. You see, in doing these things, the goal, I need to be clear about this, <laughs> The goal is not to feed our pride that we're so holy that we do these good things and we don't even tell anyone because you could go down that road. The goal is to wean ourselves off of our addiction to the attention and recognition and praise of others. Like to just wean ourselves off of it, to detox from it. You got to remember, Jesus, he was given this word to the people he originally spoke these words to. I mean, Jerusalem, I think, was 50,000 people total in population. Like, it was a different world. They didn't... <laughs> it applied to them, but I don't think this has ever applied to people or, or been more of a prophetic call than to us in our day because we live in an age where every one of us has a camera in our pocket. And we can put pictures of what we do online for the entire world to see. You know, throughout human history, people have been, like, very protective of their privacy. You know, and, like, revolutions have been fought to keep the, the government and keep people from invading our privacy. And now, like, we have all been put into this trance where we're, like, giving away all of our privacy for free, voluntarily. No one's taking it. We're just doing it. And all day, every day, we live kind of feeling like our entire lives are being lived before the world. On display, I think in this culture to adopt the discipline of secrecy, it's really an act of subversion and resistance. I'm going to do good things, but I'm not going to like put a camera up to catch it so I can throw it on social media. I'm just going to do the good thing, and then the person I do the good thing for, I'm going to ask them, hey, don't talk about this. God led me to do this, and I want this between you, me, and, and him. That's such a strange thought in our day. But if you do it, you actually learn to listen to the voice of the king. You quit listening to the voices of people. And when you learn that you have the approval of the king, you, you quit living and dying 
on the judgments of the peasants. And that's why if you can embody this practice, it has the power to radically stabilize your life and your interior world. If you can actually embody this, it can change your life. Because you won't be, you won't, you won't live just worrying about what people think of you. Dallas Willard, once again, he said this. He said, secrecy rightly practice enables to place our public relations department entirely in the hands of God. I love that phrase. We practice secrecy well. It's like people are going to think what they're going to think. God, I'm going to entrust you. If you want my good works to be known, you advertise them. If you don't, keep them secret. Because we're living for him, not for people's praise. That's what enables us to, to just not care so much. We won't be so reactive. We won't be embittered when we feel overlooked. You'll know how to find peace, even when you feel like you're misunderstood or falsely maligned. You're still serving others. You're probably serving others more, carrying each other's burdens, doing good. But you're not living for others. And I think this is actually how we grow into becoming the kinds of people that Jesus describes here. Like I really wrestle with this left hand, right hand thing of like, how do you give without your hands? Is it just hyperbole? What's he talking about? And my last Dalad Willer quote and my last quote for this sermon, but it was so powerful. He said this. He said, the kind of people who have been so transformed by their daily walk with God that good deeds naturally flow from their character are precisely the kind of people whose left hand would not notice what their right hand is doing. As, for example, when driving one's own car or speaking one's native language. What they do, they do naturally, often automatically, simply because of what they are pervasively and internally. These are people who do not have to invest a lot of reflection in doing good for others. Their deeds are in secret no matter who is watching, for they, have, they are absorbed in love of God and of those around them. They hardly notice their own deed and rarely remember it. This is what the discipline of secrecy trains us in. It trains us to live before the audience of one, to listen to the voice of one. And that's what we need more than anything. And as we come to the Lord's table, that's what we celebrate here. We celebrate that Jesus Christ offered his body broken for our sin. And that he offered his blood to be poured out for us so that we could be forgiven, accepted, and adopted and called children of God. And such we are through Christ. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to come into feast celebrating who you are, that you are a son, you are a daughter of the king, if you are in Christ. And I pray for you that as you're coming to the table, you might pray, what would it look like for me to live more fully into that identity? If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus who gave his life so that you might be accepted, you might love, you might find the affirmation and approval you long for. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are so good to us that not only do you create us and do you call us, but you give us these wonderful and profound teachings from your son. You've preserved them for us for 2,000 years. And Lord, they speak as powerfully today as they did on the day when they were first uttered. I pray for us as a people, Lord, that you would cultivate us and grow us to being the kind of people who simply do the good that you've called us to. 
without longing for the approval and the praise of other people. Lord, help us to be people who live first and foremost before you. May that shape all of our other relationships. We come to your table this morning celebrating your grace, asking for your mercy, and asking for your spirit to do a work in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.